I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 27th, 2017. Coming up, we talk with David Barron, author of the book American Eclipse, about a solar eclipse that crossed the United States and directly over Denver in 1878. Who saw it? What did they learn? To find out, stay tuned. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Our guest today will illuminate the science behind solar eclipses, when the moon barges in front of the sun. But what about the phenomenon of the night sky being illuminated enough to read a book under it and see details of distant hillsides almost as clearly as if it were daytime? And no, I'm not talking about urban light pollution. Nor am I talking about reading under a headlamp while camping or by candlelight hundreds of years ago. In fact, scientists and other sky gazers have reported that some, what some have called the nocturnal sun phenomenon, it dating back to the ancient Romans. It has remained a mystery, until now anyway. A new study conducted by atmospheric scientists at York, York University in Toronto show how the cause of these ancient bright nights may have been waves in the Earth's atmosphere. A bright night starts with a dim greenish light called airglow which is located more than 60 miles above the Earth's surface. Typically, the Earth's atmosphere consists mostly of nitrogen and oxygen molecules. But high above the Earth, ultraviolet light breaks apart the molecules. And then, after the sun sets, the molecules reunite and release energy as they do so. This energy is visible as light. And when oxygen is present, it can make the light appear greenish. The human eye cannot see this until a bright night makes the glow much brighter. That's when waves, called zonal waves, in the Earth's upper atmosphere unexpectedly align and amplify that previously faint air glow. The waves move very slowly, so bright night can last up to four nights and shine over regions as large as Europe. But they're tough to detect, given how much light pollutes the skies nowadays. The study was published this week in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. If you're old enough to recall the TV spy show Get Smart, and you can probably now hum the theme song in your mind, then you might remember the Cone of Silence. The cone was a dining table-sized plexiglass dome that whirred and whined down from the ceiling when secret agents wanted to have a top-secret conversation. Now. A German textile manufacturer has come up with something simpler and more elegant. It's a soundproof curtain that looks like a normal curtain, but when it comes to soundproofing, this curtain is unique. It's seven layers of fabric, each dampens sound in a different way. Together, the curtain typically lowers sound by 16 decibels. That's roughly the difference between the noise at a restaurant and the noise in a library. In open format offices, the curtains makers suggest that closing their curtain could quickly create a temporary quiet space for a confidential meeting or a personal phone call. And think of the other possibilities. In a restaurant, sweeping a soundproofing curtain shut might make a space where hard of hearing diners no longer need to shout. In homes, a soundproof curtain 
could mean that on one side a football fan watches TV, while on the other side a music fan listens to Mozart. The soundproof curtain will be unveiled this week at Acoustics 17 Boston. That's the third joint meeting of the Acoustical Society of America and the European Acoustics Association. On the science anniversary calendar, on this day, 63 years ago, in 1954, the world's first nuclear power station opened in Obnitsk, near Moscow. Also on this day, in 1898, Joshua Sklokum completed the first solo circumnavigation of the globe. The trip, trip took over three years on this 37-foot ship called Spray. He wrote the story of his voyage in a series titled Sailing Alone Around the World. It was published in the Century magazine. And tomorrow, more recently, at 2 p.m., Fisk Planetarium at the Un University of Colorado Boulder campus will present We Are Stars, narrated by Andy Serkis. The show aims to answer some of the biggest questions of all time. What are we made of? Where did it all come from? It will explore the secrets of our cosmic chemistry and our explosive origins and connect life on Earth to the evolution of the universe. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Well, this August 21st, some parts of the Earth will be plunged into darkness in the middle of the day. It won't be a black hole sun, but it will be a solar eclipse. The moon's shadow will cross the United States from Oregon to South Carolina, where the path closest to Colorado, passing through Wyoming and Nebraska. There have been many eclipses across the U.S., but there was a particularly special one nearly 140 years ago on July 29, 1878. That eclipse came at a time in American history of Western expansion and industrial growth, new inventions and world fairs, and a young country wanting to establish itself on the international stage of science and technology. Our guest today is David Barron, author of a book about that eclipse. The book is American Eclipse, a nation's epic race to catch the shadow of the moon and win the glory of the world. David will be talking about his book this Thursday, June 29th at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore. He is here with us in the studio to talk about that eclipse, the people involved in observing it, and it's part in Colorado history. Welcome to How on Earth, David. Thank you, Joel. Nice to be here. So before we dive into the book, to get everyone on the same level playing field here, can you give us a Eclipse 101? Absolutely. So, of course, there are lunar eclipses and there are solar eclipses. Lunar eclipses occur at night, at the time of the full moon, when occasionally the full moon passes through the shadow of the Earth and the moon goes dark. Actually, it turns sort of a blood red. 
A solar eclipse happens in the daytime when the moon is on the other side of the Earth and passes between the Earth and the sun. Now, many, many people have seen partial solar eclipses where the moon crosses in front of part of the sun, and you can only look at it safely if you use special eclipse glasses or use a pinhole projector. A total solar eclipse, however, is far rarer and far more dramatic. Only uh, any given point on Earth sees a total solar eclipse where the moon completely covers the sun about once every 400 years. The next one to come over Boulder will be in the year 2772. All right, so everyone mark that on your calendars. Right, so this one coming up August 21st of this year, first one in 99 years to cross the nation coast to coast is a very, very big deal. So that is going to be a solar eclipse, the moon passing in front of the sun, casting this shadow. So it is definitely worth your while to see it. But why are they so interesting, not just to scientists, but to the public? So this book here tells that story. And you have some very interesting characters in this story that I didn't know were involved in this eclipse. So Tell us about the main characters of your story. Right. So the eclipse of July 29th, 1878, crossed America's Wild West, went from Montana Territory down to Texas, at a time when total eclipses were, were very important to science. And a number of prominent uh, scientists, astronomers and others, came west for the eclipse. The best known of them was Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison, 31 years old, who had just invented the phonograph, comes west to study the eclipse. So Thomas Edison, the inventor wants to see an eclipse. Why would he want to, I mean, other than it being beautiful, why would he want to see an eclipse? Well, it's interesting because if you read most biographies of Edison, uh, they point out that Edison was adamant that he was not a scientist. He, in fact, was disdainful of academic scientists. However, that was Edison later in life. Edison at age 31 actually admired academic scientists and kind of wanted their respect. And so in 1878, he was going to study, he was going to do his own astronomical observation using something called the tesimeter. So let me back up. Yeah. He didn't have a science background. No. So he, he was a technologist, an inventor, a builder of widgets. Well, except he, but he admired, he was a great fan of uh, the British scientist Faraday, um, who, and, and Edison fancied himself a bit of a physicist, uh, that he would do some, make some fundamental discoveries in physics. So, and he, he dabbled in astronomy. So he clearly, he saw himself as an inventor first, but he wanted to make some fundamental discoveries about the sun during the eclipse. So you mentioned the tazimeter. Yes. Which I have never heard of before. <laughs> I'm an astronomer. I don't, I haven't seen one in a lab. Tell me a taz, what is a tazimeter? Yeah, the tazimeter, which, which at least one newspaper said at the time was going to be bigger than the phonograph. I don't think that ever panned out. I, <laughs> but the tazimeter was, today we would say it was an infrared detector. It was an extremely sensitive measure of heat that Edison claimed could detect changes in temperature as small as one millionth of a degree Fahrenheit. So this really, this is a, Again, a heat detector, a yeah. precursor to our infrared detectors, which really are major detectors and instruments used in astronomy. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and Edison had the idea, in fact, of using his tesimeter to scan the heavens 
to look for objects that you can't see with visible light but could detect with infrared radiation. The the tesimeter, as you might guess, ended up being kind of a dud. There were better infrared detectors that came along later, but Edison had the idea before it ever came to pass. Yeah, I I was very surprised to read that. Uh, You know, there's a lot in this book, like I didn't know Edison was a eclipse chaser and that he had this instrument. And it's really fun to see familiar names in history converging on on this event here. So we had Edison, well-known, and he made sure he was well-known. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was, as, as good as he was, was at inventing, he was even better at public relations. He had the newspapers wrapped around his finger. Uh, a very modern, uh, media-savvy fellow. So we have Edison out there, and he, he was stationed... In Rawlins, Wyoming. So... Give us another character in the book. Well, another one who was extremely well-known at the time, but but is not so well-known today, uh, is Mariah Mitchell. She was uh, by far the best-known female scientist in America back in that time. She was professor of astronomy at Vassar College, which, of course, was an all-women's college at the time. And Mariah Mitchell was not only a prominent scientist, she was a, a staunch advocate for women's higher education and women in science. And if, as you can imagine, it was not easy being a female scientist at that time. And you mention in your book that there was a book popular at the time which argued that women shouldn't get education. Can- yeah, in fact, it was written by a Boston doctor, Edward H. Clark. The book was called Sex in Education, and it made the argument quite seriously and was, was taken seriously that, that education would, could ruin a, a girl's health, that quite literally that, by, that education by sapping resources from other parts of a girl's maturing body, including her reproductive organs, could turn these young girls into sterile masculine invalids. And so Mariah Mitchell wanted to show that, in fact, you could be female, educated, smart, healthy, and feminine. And so in 1878, as all of these men were assembling eclipse expeditions to the Wild West, Mariah Mitchell takes it upon herself to organize an all-female expedition to Denver. And all-female, these were her students. These were her students and her sister, yeah. And so that was probably a very newsworthy item back then as well. Not only her being very famous among astronomers at the time, I mean, she really was very well respected as even though they might say, even though she was a woman. Right. Um, And so she used this high profile of hers to make a point. Absolutely. And it really was interesting to read the newspaper coverage of the Vassar College Eclipse Party. where I mean, this was a time when, when women were stepping out of their bounds they were often ridiculed in the in the press as sort of these harpies. <laughs> and uh, I saw none of that in terms of the descriptions of Mariah Mitchell's expedition. It was just all this praise for how uh, noble she was and how, uh, I mean, it was just great respect for what these women did, and both from men and women. Uh, it was quite striking. Yeah, I, I believe you said the Rocky Mountain News mentioned Mariah Mitchell as if not more famous, perhaps more important than Edison. Right, exactly. Because she shows women can do top-notch scientific research. So uh, we have Edison and Mariah Mitchell, and then you follow up another primary character. Right, I have three main characters and lots of secondary ones, but the third main character, who again was very well known in his time, 
was an astronomer named James Craig Watson. And Watson was a professor of astronomy at the University of Michigan. And his claim to fame was that he, at that time, was known as a planet hunter. Now, back then, asteroids were considered planets. They were called minor planets, but they got names just like the major ones, and finding them was a big deal. Um, And James Craig Watson had found more asteroids than just about anyone. But he came west looking for another planet, in fact, a major planet called Vulcan. Ah, Vulcan. Yes. So so there was this competition, uh, basically between the New World and the Old World, on these minor planet hunters. That was the big prize to make your name. And uh, there were some other players in that as well. But he wanted to stake his claim on a planet. And why did he think Vulcan would be there? Well, Vulcan, you know, if you look at solar system diagrams from the mid uh, 19th century, some of them, (laughs) if you look, you start at the sun, it goes Vulcan, Mercury, Venus, Earth. (laughs) So Vulcan was a hypothetical planet that many astronomers were convinced existed because Mercury's orbit didn't make sense otherwise. Mercury Mercury's orbit didn't quite fit Newtonian mechanics, and the explanation that many astronomers came up with was it seemed there was some mass between Mercury and the Sun that was tugging it along, and they assumed it was this planet Vulcan, which no one had reliably seen, but it's so close to the Sun, you you couldn't see it in the daytime, it would be lost in the Sun's glare, it would never be up in the sky at night. About the only time you might catch a glimpse of this mysterious planet would be during the very brief period of a total eclipse. So to be fair, they had precedent for thinking there was a planet there because Neptune was basically discovered in this way. Exactly, because Uranus's orbit did not make sense, and it was the French astronomer Urbain Le Verrier who, who with math, said, hmm, this, planet, this Uranus's orbit doesn't quite make sense. I think there must be a planet farther out, and here's where I think it is, and when astronomers looked, they found it. So then Leverrier said he used the same technique on the inside of the solar system and said, there must be a Vulcan. Um, and so a lot of astronomers looked for it. And if anyone had the skills to find it, it was James Craig Watson, the great planet hunter. I won't give away the punchline there, but there is a reason why Mercury had a weird orbit. But we'll talk about that maybe in another show. Right, and I do mention that in my book. (laughs) If you just joined us, you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and we are talking with David Barron, author of American Eclipse, a new book about a solar eclipse that crossed North America in 1878. So David, why was this eclipse important? We know that it was important because uh, Watson wanted to discover Vulcan. Were there other, other reasons, or are eclipses just in general scientifically interesting? Well, I mean, total eclipses were really important in that time uh, for one reason, to understand the composition of the sun. It was a chance to look at the the solar corona, which today we know is the sun's outer atmosphere. Back then it was kind of mysterious what it was, but astronomers would point their their spectroscopes at these phenomena around the sun uh, and try to figure out what chemical elements were in there. And so that was done in all the eclipses back at that time. But I would say really... The most important thing about the eclipse of 1878 was not the science, it was the effect on American culture. So tell us about the American culture at that time, the mood, and what uh, what did America have to prove with an eclipse? Well, we, you know, here we were, we had just turned 100 years old a couple years beforehand. We were still a young nation, and we were 
unsure of ourselves intellectually. Europe looked down their noses at us. You know, we were becoming an industrial power, but no one took us very seriously in terms of uh, the arts or music or literature or science. And this was a chance for this young, striving country to show that we could do science. We could take on Europe uh, in, in astronomy. Here we had a total eclipse in our own backyard. Uh, it was our chance to show that we were going to use it to, to study the natural world. And so it was really interesting as I got into this and read all the coverage of the eclipse of 1878, the ways in which the American public really took patriotic pride in cheering on the home team of astronomers and wanting them to succeed. And there were big-name astronomers who were all converging along the path of totality, and Edison, in no small part, made sure that it was... He had just uh, invented the phonograph right. um, and improved, I believe, the, the phone. Uh, yeah, the, the telephone of Alexander Graham Bell, yeah. So <laughs> he, he was bringing uh, his... Uh, his high profileness to this as well. Well, in fact, he brought along a reporter from the New York Herald who was kind of uh, embedded with his party of scientists in Rollins, Wyoming. So, I mean, and there were lots of other uh, journalists out in the West in Denver and and Colorado Springs and elsewhere uh, covering the eclipse. So Denver, Denver was right in the path of totality, right across Denver and Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak was there, yeah. So tell us a little about... uh, about Denver. So Mariah Mitchell was based near Denver, and then another group, Watson, I believe, was... Or well, Watson was Watson up in Wyoming, Rollins. but there was a group from Princeton that That's camped right. out at Cherry Creek. And so there were uh, and there were lots of astronomers in Denver. I mean, the, the hotels were completely overrun. People were left to sleep on cots in hotel parlors and dining rooms and stuff like that. Keep that as a word of warning for going to this next uh, eclipse. The hotels are probably already sold out all along the path of totality. So it was it was a party atmosphere. Businesses closed and absolutely. It you know one of the things that that I just loved about writing the book was that the eclipse chasing experience, which which I have done myself. I've seen five total eclipses. I go around the world to see them. It's exactly the same today as it was in 1878. I mean, by then you know to- a total eclipse for the most part didn't take people by surprise. They knew it was coming. They understood what was causing it. They came out to see it intentionally. And it was observed as just an amazing natural spectacle. And it's just a shared human experience that crosses over from generation to generation to generation. I think it connects us with history. And and speaking of the shared, one part that I found very interesting is there was crowdsourcing. There was citizen science involved in this. Yeah, right. And there's going to be again on this the eclipse this year. But back in 1878, there were a couple of crowdsourcing efforts. Um, one actually took place in Denver, a group of astronomers from Chicago. Uh, they they looked for volunteers. They got 20 just members of the public in Denver to sign up for a corona drawing class where they were taught how to very quickly make a sketch of the solar corona. And in fact, the class was divided up into quadrants to, to each sketch a different quarter of the corona so that in three minutes of totality, they would together sketch the whole thing. I thought that was really a brilliant idea. And the reason sketches were so important at the time, they had photographs back then. Yeah, but photography was not very sophisticated. So the human eye was still the best instrument. Yeah. I mean, and if you go out and see the total eclipse this year, which I hope absolutely everyone will, which means you've got to get to Wyoming or Nebraska, the corona is the most 
gloriously beautiful thing you've ever seen in the sky. It's, it looks like it's made out of strands of silk. It's got all this texture to it. And again, today's cameras, digital cameras, can capture it, but it takes a very good camera to capture that level of detail. And the total eclipse itself, as you said, I, I saw one on my birthday in the Mediterranean. Talk about a birthday present. It is just stunning to see that in the sky. It, it's so hard to describe, but you do a, a really good job of describing not only that in your book, but the moments before the eclipse, how things change. Can you just give a feel for people who are going to go see an eclipse, just the weirdness before the eclipse? It's like you're a, you're entering some other realm. It's like you're you're transitioning from Earth to some other planet because the the sky the ch changes colors, shadows look completely different. Shadows become bizarrely sharp. Uh, plus, you'll see little crescents under trees uh, as the the spaces between the leaves act as pinhole cameras projecting images of the crescent sun on the ground. But as soon as totality sets in, it's like you're falling down a well. The the light just gets sucked away. And I mean, I've had the experience where it really feels like I'm losing my eyesight. Uh, it's very very bizarre. And and if you have the vantage point, you can see the shadow. Yes, and approaching. That's, that's what the folks in 1878 on Pikes Peak saw. They looked to the northwest, and they could see the shadow as this enormous shaft of darkness racing toward them at 2,000 miles an hour. Just a phenomenal experience. Highly recommended for everyone. Do you have any final recommendations for eclipse watchers? Well, my main recommendation is do not accept a partial eclipse. In Boulder, <laughs> I, I'm serious. Take in, nothing but a in, total. In Boulder, it will be a 94% partial eclipse. That sounds impressive. It really isn't. You will, don't really notice. You will. Well, you'll, you can I mean, it'll be shadows. a little weird, yeah. but it will never go dark. You will not be able to look and see the solar corona. You'll never be able to look at the sky with the naked eye the way you will during the total eclipse. Everyone in their lifetime deserves to see a total eclipse. So go do it. Highly recommended. We have been talking with David Barron, author of American Eclipse, a nation's epic race to catch the shadow of the moon and win the glory of the world. The story of the solar eclipse that crossed the United States on July 29th. 1878. David will be talking about his book at the Boulder Bookstore this Thursday, June 29th at 7.30. He also will be talking at the Tattered Cover in Denver on July 12th and the Denver Museum of Nature and Science on July 24th. To find out more about his talk this Thursday at the Boulder Bookstore, go to their website, boulderbookstore.net. Thank you very much for being on the show, David. Oh, my pleasure, Joel. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. And this week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Soundgarden. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. <laughs>